Let me ask you a question. Do you have a deep knowing that you're only just scratching the surface of where you're capable of taking your business growth? Are you successful but have some invisible hurdles that are slowing you down? Business growth comes from creating and implementing strategies and frameworks, but strategies and frameworks on their own will not take you to the level I know you desire and are capable of. Living in alignment with your unique human design will help you to attract the abundance you are ready for. And I've just created a free guide to help you understand your unique human design blueprint. It's called the Human Design Advantage, and you can get your copy over at samanthariley.global forward slash advantage. You've got to find out the real things that matter to you and what puts you on your path. Why are you on the path you're on? Can you explain in the form of a story what would be the most defining day of your life that explains the path you took? My name is Samantha Riley, and this is the podcast for coaches, course creators, and experts who want to grow their influence, income, and impact to take their coaching business to a million dollars and beyond. We're going to share the latest business growth, marketing, and leadership strategies, as well as discussing how you can use your human design to create success in business and life inside and out create the influence, income and impact you need to build your business so you can create your ideal lifestyle. It's time to make a difference and scale up. This is the Influence by Design podcast. Welcome to today's episode of Influence by Design. I'm your host today, Samantha Riley, and I'm really looking forward to today's topic because we're going to talk about how everyday leaders can build irresistible brands, which is something that every coach or consultant, anyone that's in this industry needs to have to be able to differentiate themselves and stand out. So I'm interviewing Agair Maxwell, who's a brand strategist, author, and keynote speaker who's shared speaking stages with icons such as Richard Branson and Gene Simmons. So I think there's a story to be had there. He was named Speaker of the Year by TEC Canada, the country's largest CEO organization, and he's the author of Big Little Legends. Welcome to the show, Gear. It's great to be here, Samantha. Thank you for the kind words. Somewhere up in heaven, my mother is smiling because she thinks someone else thinks the world of her boy besides herself. How's that? <laughs> I remember one of my son's teachers saying that to me one day. I pulled him aside and I said, you know, everything that you've done for my son is so amazing. Thank you so much. And he said something different. He said, my mum's never going to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's great to have you here. Look, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about, before we jump into the topic, a little bit about the kind of clients you work with, what you do, and how you got to be doing what you do today. That's a great way to start, actually. So for openers, I am a recovering broadcast journalist. I did 20 years of radio and television before I fell by accident into the world of business consulting and soft skills training. and. I picked up some things along the way, and I don't mind telling you, Big Little Legends, it took me nearly four years to write the book, but it's nearly two decades of research. And not only recovering broadcast journalist, Samantha, I am a history buff. I'm a history nerd. I was the kid, I was that nerdy kid who read big, thick books about military campaigns and generals and admirals. I'm addicted to documentaries. Like I, I lead a very boring life that way. 
Okay. I don't think that sounds boring at all. (laughs) But yeah, I'm the kid and I was a sports nut as a kid. And of course, I read all about sports history. And, you know, here on this side of the Atlantic or the Pacific, whichever way you want to go, it's, it's hockey history, football history. And so I started developing some theories a number of years ago about what was it that created differentiation. And I think you mentioned that in your opening. What is it that really creates differentiation? And the longer I studied this, the more I started to challenge what traditional marketing is not challenging. I don't think differentiation has anything to do with competitive advantage, features, advantages, benefits, or unique selling propositions. I think, I don't know how else to say this because, you know, Canadians were supposed to be, you know, overly polite. Okay. But I've never, ever been, you know, you have business buddies, don't you, Samantha? Absolutely. Lots of them. Everyone watching and listening has got business buddies. Have you ever seen it happen where you're hanging out with your business friend at a coffee shop and your friend says, you know, Samantha, I've got to tell you about ABC Company. They have the most incredible USP. (laughs) I guarantee you that's never happened. Uh huh. And my point is this if you really want to create true differentiation, substantial differentiation, you can't look at it from, and here's the issue you can't read the label when you're inside the bottle. It can't be done. Okay. And so it, it really takes a lot of stepping outside and seeing what's true from an audience perspective. Because that's the only perspective that counts. To me, brand is shorthand for a number of things, not the least of which is brand is, it's not your logo. No, it's the story, but it's also the strategic positioning you want to occupy in the mind of the market. And that's what you build your reputation on. So if I may, are we not in a space, let's call it thought leadership? Is that fair to say? That's a great differentiation or a great explainer right there. Right. So we're in the space called thought leadership, right? So right away in the space called thought leadership, we can look at Jim Collins, for example, and he's known for what? Good to great. Stephen Covey is known for the seven habits, right? Yeah. Yeah. Simon Sinek is known for? Power of why. Start with why. Yep. Yep. My hypothesis is you've only got two to six words. Whether you're in thought leadership, whether you're B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter what it is. It's quite universal. You've got two to six words to own the market. If I say to you, Samantha, what words does Nike own the market with? What are they? Well, it's just do it. Uh huh. Nike's all about just do it. Three words. They've been doing it since 1988. My point is that Nike knows its brand positioning, its story, it has no ending, and it's all around that phrase. Just do it, metaphorically, is no different than start with why, or the seven habits, or good to great, or big little legends. You've only got that much time. And that being said, I use the Nike example. I just did a CEO group this morning out of New Orleans, Louisiana, via Zoom, And I say, so what do you know Nike by? One, two, three. They all go, just do it. 
great. What's the equivalent for Reebok? And nobody knows the answer. And that's my point, Samantha. I can't find anybody who knows the answer. And Reebok has spent millions and millions and millions of marketing that in the end becomes very ineffective. So what happened was years ago, I started to make the connection. The legends never worry about that. Legendary brands, the ones who stand out from the crowd, the Apple, the Nikes, the Ferraris, the Disney's, the Harley Davidson's, those are legendary brands, but so are Led Zeppelin, right? So in every single product service category, someone's the legend or there's a legend waiting to be created. So that's what I do in a nutshell is I know this is probably a longer answer than you intended, but I study the origin of legends. I decode what makes them irresistible. And then how can anyone take that invisible, that intangible force and use it to positively influence buyer behavior in their favor? I love this and I love that you've mentioned origin story because I think that this is something that trips up a lot of people and I have been asked over and over again, how do we create this origin story when we haven't actually slept on our parents' couch, we haven't slept in someone's basement, we haven't gone broke, we haven't been an alcoholic, we haven't been a drug addict. They're like, We've just had this really great life where we had parents that loved us and we were a normal family and I'm just doing what I do. And I think that I would really love to tap into this because this is this will be so helpful for people to hear. Yeah, that's a fabulous question. And I cover it actually in chapter 12 of the book. And it has to do with something that is so unique within all of us. And the way to describe it metaphorically is through something identified by a fellow writer named Stephen Pressfield. Pressfield, in my view, is the writer's writer. And he wrote a book a number of years ago called The War of Art. But Stephen Pressfield, as a kid, was a golfer. And as a golfer and as a young caddy, he hooked on to something that I think is timeless and universal, and it's called the authentic swing. Whether you're into golf or not, the golf swing, and this is what your question is demanding, Samantha, nothing is more original than a person's golf swing. It's as original as a snowflake or a thumbprint. And Pressfield's the guy who wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. All right? Right. <laughs> not one that I've come across. <laughs> okay. But he identified the authentic swing this way in the movie and in the novel. And what I believe to be true, the authentic swing isn't learned. It's remembered. It was already there within you. And I never really understood that till a few years ago. What you mentioned in your question, I haven't had those you know, I never fell 10,000 feet out of airplane, broke both legs, and I didn't have incredible trauma and tragedy. And you don't need incredible trauma and tragedy to find the story within you. What you need to do, though, is find what's authentic to you and your experience so you can start from that position. Does that make sense? Sure does. So I am not a person of wealth and privilege. <laughs> right? Or anything like that. 
And when I say this, I'm just being careful so people hear it the way it's intended to sound on tender ears. I am the son of a former golf pro. And my dad was born seven minutes from the first tee at St. Andrews, Scotland. But before anyone thinks that golf pro is about country clubs and wealth, that was for, you know, he came to Canada as a 17 year old in 1957. Do you know how much money there was in the game back then? Zero. Like when dad grew up and came of age in the world of golf, it wasn't what it is today. Not at all. And when he turned pro, I've got the newspaper clippings of him winning the 1961 Nova Scotia Open. He won $250. He had to hold down part-time jobs to keep his passion alive in the game. And why am I telling you all this? Because it took me, I've got a front row seat, watching my father, who in his pro and amateur career won over 100 tournaments, but I didn't appreciate the gift. And as his only son, it only kicked in maybe, I think, about five, six years ago when I actually went to St. Andrews in Scotland, and now it made sense. And now I understand the metaphor for the golf swing of where's the authenticity coming from. My dad's swing is like nobody else's, but no wonder. He learned it on the North Sea coast. I realized I'm not the golfer, but if I'm going to be a writer, then I'm going to write about the stuff that I care about that I can relate to. And that's history. I'm going right back to the seven, eight year old. Now, do you see where big little legends comes from? So what I'm hearing is really tap into what makes you unique. It doesn't need to be the sad story. It just needs to be your story. It's got to be your story. The best for anyone listening or watching, the best clip, you can find it on YouTube. It was from Ricky Gervais, who I think is one of the great storytellers of our time. And Ricky Gervais does this three-minute or so YouTube clip. Write about what you know. That's There it is, Samantha. There it is again. That's the authentic swing. That's who you already were meant to be. So Ricky Gervais was basically schooled by an English teacher in high school when he tried to write flowery prose. And when he actually wrote about his mother, who was a cleaning woman, that's when he got the A-plus grade. He wrote from a place he knew, not from what someone else was trying to tell him or should be. Love it. It sounds so simple, doesn't it, Samantha? It does. And let's tap into this. I know you talk about the Mona Lisa effect. Yes. And for anyone that has been to the Louvre, they would really, really understand this. There's this huge museum. And then when I went to see it, I was like, that's it. That's, we came in and we walked through this museum with all of these paintings and all of this amazing art and statues and we all beeline to this little tiny painting the size of a postage stamp. Let's talk about the Mona Lisa effect. How can we create that with our brand? How can we turn this authentic story into something that people beeline towards? Well, and let's define the Mona Lisa effect. It's that phenomena where there's an unusually high amount of consumer demand. When all the attention is directed one way and the book starts 
chapter one is at the Louvre in Paris because, like I said, Samantha, I was for years, I was trying to, I kept feeling this, but I couldn't, it took a while to put the pieces together. But then when I actually created the book, it made sense to start there. So you and I, even though we haven't met until today, we had the exact same experience. So when you go to the Louvre, we'll warn our listeners who haven't been, okay? When you go there, you're going to feel the exact same thing (laughs) that Samantha and I felt and 10 million people a year feel. That's the number, Samantha. Wow. It's huge, isn't it? 10 million. It's a huge number. All right. And for me, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the first or second time. I think it was on the third visit. It clicked in. And the preamble to this is that brand. I think this is so helpful for everyone. When you understand brand is really the language of that which is metaphorical and meaningful and emotional and symbolic, then you understand it's not business, which is logical and linear and analytical and mathematical. It's a completely different language. And I can remember standing in that museum, and for whatever reason, it hit me. Metaphorically, I mean, in reality, right? Samantha, play along with me. In reality, it's a museum. But metaphorically, it's not a museum. It's a market. It's a competitive market. There's 35,000 objects and artifacts and paintings in the Louvre. What are they all competing for? Attention. What are 35,000 realtors in Sydney, Australia competing for? Attention. What are all the business coaches all online competing for? Attention. We live in the attention economy. If you get their attention, now you might be able to somehow make a connection and eventually do business with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, total. Yeah. So, Samantha, you can even picture it. You're in there. Once you realize you're not in a museum, it looks like a museum, but it's not. And then you wander down the hallways like you and I did. And what do we see? Magnificent, breathtaking works of art. No spectators. None. Like you'll stand there. You can shoot a cannon through some of those galleries, not hit anyone. And I remember that feeling. I'm watching these. I'm studying these paintings and I can't. How did they do this and create this? And then you turn the corner, one gallery. And what do you see? A mob. I was going to say, you see people. You don't see the painting. You see people. (laughs) So think of the mob rules. This is Black Sabbath, 1982, when Ronnie James Dio replaces Ozzy Osbourne as the lead singer. It's the mob. Okay, that's what's going on. Are you kidding me? And you said slightly bigger than a postage stamp, and you're right. And the photos are just snapping like crazy. And I did the journalistic thing, which is why. Where did all this start? Why is the Mona Lisa getting all the attention? And I don't mind sharing. We'll share freely from the book. I share all my best stuff online anyway. But that's why it had to start there to understand the Mona Lisa effect. And here's what happened. And it's a recurring theme throughout the book. In every single chapter, there's 12 chapters. We start at the Louvre. We end at St. Andrew, Scotland. Okay. Crossing the Swilkin Bridge in the old course. Great. Where it starts is because of this. Recurring theme is we can pinpoint the exact day when the world tilted on its axis 
and the giant magnet on steroids started to do its magic and bring the crowd in every single chapter. For the Mona Lisa, it was August 21st, 1911. She was stolen. And when she was stolen, it was an inside job. Italian handyman named Vincenzo Perugia walks out broad daylight on a Monday morning at 9 a.m. And there, it's tucked under his smock. Away he goes. See, Samantha, you know it's small enough, right? He can carry it away. No one will ever know, right? Would you believe prior to that event, the Mona Lisa was not the slam dunk top of mind all-time favorite as the greatest, most recognizable painting in the world? I did not know that. So you're telling us we just need to be stolen. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's true. When you research this, you'll see art critics. So think of snooty art societies, okay? Many of the snooty critics believe da Vinci's better painting was The Last Supper or that other works from Rembrandt or Renoir or Van Gogh were of more, shall we say, worthy of reverence. The Mona Lisa was regarded, but not this overwhelming top of mind awareness queen. Okay. And here's how not famous she was. When she was stolen, it took the officials at the Louvre somewhere between 30 to 48 hours before they even noticed she was gone. Oh, wow. Don't tell me she was the most famous painting in the world of all time, all the time. She wasn't. Okay. So something happened. And what happened was when she was stolen and then the officials found out, they notified the authorities and then the media picks up the story. Samantha, she doesn't just go front page in Paris. She goes front page everywhere, Pittsburgh to Peking to Possum Ridge, Arkansas. What's the only mass media platform of the day back in 1911? Newspaper. That's it. So from Sydney, Australia to Sydney, Nova Scotia, what's front page news? This painting got stolen and no one knows where it is. Mm -hmm. Her picture's on the front page. Samantha, it's a two-year news cycle. Millions and millions and millions of dollars of free publicity, free millions. Okay. Oh, you think there were conspiracy theories and fake news back in 1911? What do you think? <laughs> I'm guessing there probably was. <laughs> oh, there's all kinds of letters to the editor. It's a national disgrace. France has been insulted. The chief of police resigns in disgrace. There were high profile suspects. Picasso was hauled in for questioning. <laughs> Samantha, you can see it though, right? Uh-huh. The coverage, no painting before or since has ever got that kind of publicity. And when she was finally recovered two years later in Florence in 1913, Perugia tries to sell it to an art dealer. That's how police cracked the case. She's brought back to France. And when she comes home, 120,000 people are there waiting for her arrival. Wow. Here's the theory. And this is why it's relevant to everyone listening. What happens that day? if Perugia walks out with a different painting. Mm. Which painting are we talking about, Samantha? The one that got stolen was the one that was going to win. Don't kid yourself. It's not about the smile, the enigmatic smile or the eyes that follow. That's all come later. Yeah. 
right? Because people will add their own spin. They will. Okay. But here's the other piece of the puzzle that I think is so relevant to our viewers and listeners. How many world-class paintings are there in the Louvre? And I would say there's 35,000. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. So in other words, for you or I, imagine you or I trying to draw a painting to be good enough to get in the Louvre. What would it have to be? Well, I can't paint, so it would never happen. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. So you can be world-class. And you and I've seen this, Samantha. You can be world-class and still be ignored. And in the world of thought leadership, and especially with people doing private coaching, you've got to understand. You can have all the credentials behind your name you want. You can still be ignored because that's what happens in the real life market called the Louvre. Only one painting is getting all the attention. So one of the things I explain in the book, the book is divided. And it's very deliberate. There's four parts, 12 chapters, 36 strategic and practical takeaways. And here's one from chapter one. Art without a story is just paint on a canvas. A business without a story, it's just like every other business. You can't create the legend without the story. Can't be done. And no amount of logical thinking around your features, advantages, benefits, or the quantitative or qualitative aspects of your offer or the number of degrees or professional credentials you have. That's not what we're talking about, not in this conversation. I'd love you to give us a couple of small examples of how we can start to create this. Obviously, we can't be stolen. It's not going to happen like that. What are some of the applications from taking our story from where it is to making it irresistible? Well, it helps. First of all, and that brings up a great point, because that's the role of the leader. So the leader recognizes a certain fundamental truth. You could get lucky. In other words, a story could happen to you. It happened to the Mona Lisa. It happened to a guy selling soup in Midtown Manhattan back in 1995. One episode of Seinfeld and the Soup Nazi was created. <laughs> and long lineups ensued. So I allow for the fact you can get lucky, but either a story happens to you or you've got to find a way to make one happen. Now that's easier said than done. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if you want, I can show you a real life example. It's out of chapter two, and this would be the origin of Big Little Legends. The caveat, Samantha, would be it doesn't matter what the product service category is because legends, by definition, are universal. I've never been to Sydney, Australia. I can't wait to go someday, but I'm willing to bet almost anything one of the top one, two, or three most photographed, most selfie place, whatever, would be in front of that big Sydney Opera House. Uh huh. For whatever reason. Absolutely. So that's no different than the Leaning Tower of Pisa that way or the Statue of Liberty. Exactly. It's an icon, isn't it? Absolutely. Right. So those are the, some of the things that you've got to be aware of. Now, if you're a solopreneur, if you're a small business owner, 
you don't have millions of dollars to throw at this to create what I call a physical icon. But what you can do is create your own story. Okay. And so the easy example is this one. And I know some people are going to be listening to us on audio. So I'll do a little bit of old fashioned radio too. Okay. Because some people will watch and maybe some people will listen to it. It's when I met Jim and Donna Gilbert and they were small business owners, a mom and pop shop from Fredericton, New Brunswick. And they've got in 2002, they've got five employees. They're doing about 1.2, 1.3 million a year in annual revenue, selling an interchangeable product. It's the classic. There's no difference between their product and everyone else's product. And when I met them, and this is what I would characterize them as, Samantha, they're very low-key and soft-spoken. You could describe them as introverts if you wanted to. Kind, generous, and they don't fit the stereotype of their category at all. All right? But they're in one of the businesses that probably, or one of the business categories that's the worst in the world for public perception and reputation. <laughs> and they sell used cars. Mm -hmm. What do people automatically think of, Samantha, when they hear used car dealer? Yeah, you always think of that greasy or that, you know, the snake oil car salesman. You can see that, right, visually? Uh-huh. Yeah, totally. Even in audio, right? So I, when I did my speaking tours through the UK, I learned a new word because every audience said the same word, dodgy. They're all dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the Australian equivalent is. And so in that particular category, one of the things you want to be aware of that's universal is what's the language of the category. Every category, Samantha, speaks a certain language. Well, in the car business, again, I can't speak to Australia, but certainly here in North America, everyone is better quality, better selection, better service, better value, better prices. 0.9% financing and all makes and models and no credit, no problem. It's just the same screaming and shouting. That's not him. And it never was him. And it only took us four years. Imagine your listeners are going to hear this in less than 40 minutes and figure this out. It only took us four years to figure out how this really works. And I, it was part intention, but also part accidental. In other words, we didn't really for sure know what we were doing, but it felt right. Okay. And here's how it worked. We went on in September of 2006 and told 30 second stories about Canada's huggable car dealer. We did radio vignettes and we told stories of how he's the Casanova of customer focus. He's the Romeo of roadsters. By golly, he's the McDreamy of drive. Stop by a Jim Gilbert's, get your daily dose of Hugtonium designed to improve your love affair with your car and your libido. Well, it certainly stands out. Who else was doing that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Who else was doing that? Nobody. And we ran series after series of these 30-second spots and never talked about the product. Think about that for a second. That's the most counterintuitive thing you can imagine, right? And the philosophy is, if everybody zigs, you zag, okay? But it went beyond just catchy radio ads because as Donna Gilbert said, we can't just talk about being the huggable car dealer. We actually have to be that. What does that mean? 
Well, within six weeks, that's when dozens of teddy bears started showing up, followed by literally hundreds of teddy bears and mascots and merry-go-rounds. And there's a two-kilometer nature trail to go walk your dog. For people who are listening, if Walt Disney could imagine and conceptualize a used car lot, this is what it looks like. No one ever thought of doing that, but this is what has happened out of Fredericton, New Brunswick. Get your popcorn ready. And by 2020, this business had grown to 38 people with revenues north of $50 million. He's the largest independent used car dealer in all four Atlantic Canadian provinces. And you can see here, Samantha, on the video, August 21st, 2019, more than 2,000 people, the Mona Lisa effect on the anniversary of her theft, more than 2,000 people show up Jim and Donna's 40th anniversary just to shake their hand and give them a hug. And so what's happened is from the worst category in the world, he's become metaphorical equivalent to the Nike, the Ferrari, the Harley Davidson, the Disney of his product service category. Now, where does that story come from? Where does Huggable come from? Deep, deep down? Even Jim himself didn't fully understand it till one day we were out on the road together. And I'll never forget, he was driving me back to the airport in Quebec City and he, he had told his story and then he stopped and he said, now I get it. I said, what do you mean? He says, my father was an orphan who was shuttled around 12, 15 different places before a French speaking family took him in. He didn't speak a word of French. They didn't speak a word of English, but they took his dad in. And Jim said that day, he says, you know, I understand now. He says, my father used to tell my sister and I always be nice to people, even if they can't do anything for you in return. Huggable is much more than a physical hug. It's a metaphor for taking care of people and going the extra mile for serving customers. But more than anything, it's the poetic expression of the values that were already there. Samantha, values. This is all built on values, all of it. But you've got to find out, if I'm talking directly to someone listening today struggling with this, You've got to find out the real things that matter to you and what puts you on your path. Why are you on the path you're on? Can you explain in the form of a story what would be the most defining day of your life that explains the path you took? Like this is, you know, this is not for the faint of heart. I won't sugarcoat it that way. It's not you know, check the boxes. Here are the seven easy steps to follow. But then if you can figure out your values and mine is the lessons of history, right? Then you've got to figure out, well, what is the metaphorical or poetic expression of what that is? So that now you're stepping into your own story, not living anybody else's. Love it. Love it. Gare, for all of the people that are listening that would like to dive into this further, can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you? Oh, I'm the easiest guy to find on the internet. Well, it's Gare, G-A-I-R. There's only two of us in Canada with that spelling, so it's Gare Maxwell. That's the website. 
We do a series. It's kind of like our own response to Netflix, but we do a series called Leaders and Legends. Everything is free on that because I really do believe that, you know, you've got to be now in the 21st century. We are one big global village, right? Totally. And so totally. So I'm the easiest guy to find. People can connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, go to the website, subscribe to the blog. The book is really, Samantha, it was the quest, if you will, to put into coherent book form all of these crazy counterintuitive thoughts in a process that made sense. And one of the things that's happening early on, if you don't mind me sharing this with you, early on with the book, I'm getting all kinds of emails and private messages from people saying, you know, as I'm reading the stories, what's happening, people are putting themselves in the stories. That's what happens, right? Right. Oh, and what's happening, almost like the magical cover would suggest, okay, is that, oh, I'm finding some of my own truth just by reading about other people and how they did it, right? And that's as simple as I can make it. The book now is available worldwide through Amazon. I think Amazon does a healthy business in the land down under, right? Absolutely. Right. And so, yeah, like I say, so I welcome people who want to reach out and like I say, subscribe to our uh, Leaders and Legends series and absolutely stay in touch online. Perfect. And of course, we'll pop all of those links in the show notes so you can go and find that over at samanthariley.global forward slash podcast and just click those links and get the book and connect with Gare. Thank you so much for sharing all you have today, Gare. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Absolutely, Samantha. Never forget, reject ordinary, be legendary. Oh, mic drop moment right at the end. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Influence by Design podcast. If you want more, head over to samanthariley.global forward slash podcast for the show notes and links to today's gifts and sponsors. And if you're looking to connect with other coaches and experts who are growing and scaling their business too, come and join the Coaches Course Creators and Speakers group on Facebook. The links are all waiting for you over at samanthariley.global.